Welcome to Real Christianity, a weekly show designed to help Christians know their Bible, defend their faith, and truly understand what it means to follow Jesus. The premise is simple. The culture is getting louder. The church is getting flashier, but few pastors are teaching on how to live a biblical life. My name is Dale Partridge, along with my incredible wife, Veronica. Join us as we start an important conversation about what it really means to be a Christian. Welcome to Real Christianity. Today, we are answering two questions. We're not going to be doing just a a regular one-topic show. We're going to be doing two questions. What are we talking about today? Today, we're talking about how parents can help choose good friends for their children and Resurrection Sunday. Yeah, so if you're listening to this on Wednesday, which is like real time, this coming Sunday is Easter Sunday. And so I thought that it would be important to talk about Resurrection. Um, And then also, uh, a mother asked Veronica a question about how to choose good friends for your kids. And I think um, Veronica's got some good wisdom on that that we've learned over the years from uh, our parenting mentors that have taught us a lot. A um, few things before we jump in. One is you can listen to the show. Uh, if you're listening to it on iTunes, you can also listen to it on Spotify or Google Play. Uh, watch it on YouTube and you can subscribe to our channel there. Um, we'd love to have you. If you're a regular listener to the show, we'd love for you to leave a review on iTunes. Just tap the stars. Uh, that would be uh, a blessing for us. And um, show that you're edified by this show. Um, I'm going to let Veronica start today and just dive into this question. I'll start with a question and then you can answer it. Okay. So pretend that I'm talking in a 32-year-old woman's voice. Um, how can a mother wisely put together good friends for her children? All right. So um, I'm just going to start with younger children because that's the season that we're in Mm -hmm. and that's what I'm most comfortable with and what I'm currently exercising. Um, And generally a child's first friends other than their siblings are the children of your own friends, um, the parents. Mm -hmm. Children uh, that you're going to be having, you know, children in general are a reflection of their own parents. So they're going to mirror their parents' language, their behavior and their character. So I would say that when you're choosing and examining your child's friends, there's a few questions that you should be asking yourself. Um, what is your family's core values and goals for your child? Um, will who they will who they will be hanging out with help move your child towards those goals yeah. and values, or will they actually hinder or even detour your child? Um, yeah. Another question is who are you surrounding yourself with? Because again, if you're surrounding yourself with these friends, their children are likely going to be around as well, Yep. around your children. Um, and how are they raising their children? I know that um, those are a lot of questions that some of our mentors have taught us to ask ourselves. And um, I know that in our close community of friends, um, us moms have even come together to have an intentional training time if we know that one of our kids is currently 
struggling or working through an, an sharing issue, or sharing, yeah, yelling um, or you know being friendly or whatever. Right. If our kids are currently working through an issue and it's something that we've talked about us moms together, we'll set a, t- um, a time to get together for an intentional training purpose um, to train our kids in those areas. Yep. Um, our kids don't necessarily know that they're there for training. They think that they're just there to play and have a good time. But since the moms have communicated this ahead of time, they are aware and more observant of the situation and how, you know, your goal is to go about it. Well, and I want to mention one thing is like this difference between training and and disciplining. Mm -hmm. Like training is proactive work and disciplining is reactive work. And, And yeah, what you're talking about here is this a proactive thing, like getting together and going, hey, Aria is really struggling with, um, you know, with, you know, let's just, the easy example is sharing. She's not really struggling with sharing, but let's just use that as an example. Mm-hmm. Um, can we go over there and put some toys in the room? Let's have a conversation and see if they can pass things back and forth and deal with that in a, whatever manner you want, whatever result you're looking for, right? Mm-hmm. Is that kind of what you're, what you're talking yeah, about? Totally. Yeah, totally. Um, so, yeah, having other families around you who are like-minded and have similar goals and values is key to help spurring one another on in the parenting journey. Mm-hmm. Um, friends like that are, are and family um, are so valuable as, tr- as a trusted voice speaking into your child's life um, that also happens to align with what you as the parent are teaching them at home. So those are some questions I would ask yourself, especially with younger kids. Um, yeah, I think about... I think we heard that study from, I don't know who told us, but that kids who are raised in community with like-minded adults end up um, having less rebellious hearts and rebellious activity as they get older because it wasn't just their parents affirming their values, Mm -hmm. but it was... Coming from different sources of respected people in their lives as well. Yeah, like Mm -hmm. same affirmation from multiple angles. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah, so moving on to kids are are a little bit older, I would say many of these principles still apply. Um, You just get to teach your child to ask themselves these questions and teach them how to go to scripture on their own to examine their specific situation with a friend. Um, Some good friends of ours, Angie and Isaac Tolpin, many of you guys have heard us talk about them before. Um, They actually did a whole podcast on this as well um, over at Courageous Parenting. And when I listened to that podcast, there were... um, a couple of things, there's one area that really stood out to me and it was when Isaac was sharing that they, in their house, they talk about there, you know, there's three types of friends. There's friends, there's friendlies and there's frenemies. Mm -hmm. And because we, you know, in today's culture with social media, especially like we just call everybody our friend, like, Oh, my friend, so-and-so in California, where you, you actually never even met them. It's just a person you communicate with online. Um, but even in person acquaintances, everyone just calls everyone their friend. Um, but friends are genuine friends who you mesh well with. Um, you have each other's best interests at heart. Um, a friend you are accountable to and vice versa. Friendlies are more acquaintances. Um, somebody that can turn into a friend. Um, but, you know, they're more of acquaintances. And yep. then frenemies are people you are friendly with, but walk contrary to how you live. Yeah, and I think about this like, yeah, your friends are the people you can like have fellowship with, like real deep, mm-hmm. unified fellowship with um, on core values. And, and yeah, we all have that group of people. Um, the Bible calls for us to to have, I mean, the one another's, there's a hundred one another's 
and scripture in that side. You're so close that you can do these things to one another. And then that, yeah, that second category of like, yeah, I know that person. He seems like a nice guy. I think we have the same values, but we just don't have enough time to become friends yet. And then, yeah, that last group is that these are people that you love as a Christian, but at the end of the day, they actually might not be saved. They might walk contrary to the scriptures. Um, you don't hate them, but, but... And you could be praying for them. Yes, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, and then another area that I thought of when I was, um, when I heard this question was also take into account your child, your own child's personality. And mm-hmm. to be honest with yourself, are they more of a leader or are they more of a follower? Um, if your child is more of a follower, who they hang out with is going to make a huge impact on them. Yeah. Um, and we even see that in our own children. Um, we have one that's definitely a leader and one that's more seems to be a little bit more of a follower. Um, and so I, I'm glad that we saw this early on and, you know, those may change, but as of now, that's what it looks like. Um, but if you want to hear more on that, um, I recommend going to check out Andrew and Isaac's, uh, Tolpin's podcast over at Courageous Parenting Podcast. And I believe the episode I'm referencing is called um, Don't Run the Parenting Race Alone. Um, and they get way more in-depth on that. I, I, the, this topic idea of just if you have a follower child or a... It's okay if you have a follower. Not, not everybody's leaders. This mm-hmm. society just wants to make everybody like what they're not. Mm-hmm. Um, and at the end of the day, yeah, we have, we have a child who um, he's he seems to be more of a follower. It doesn't mean that he can't lead his family when he's older. It doesn't mean mm-hmm. that he can't... Um, be a leader and at work when he gets older, but his just personality is like he's more of a um, just a little bit more timid and yeah, and he wants mm-hmm. to come in and support as a support role and not necessarily um, a go getter the way that our daughter ha- has been. And so when we pair him up with people, he's going to really take on the activities that the other kids are doing. Mm-hmm. Where our daughter Aria, if we put her out there, all the other kids are going to take part in the activities that she's doing. Mm-hmm. You know, like you're thinking about the same story that I am probably is that you walk into a room, there's, you know, five little girls and Aria walks in, even if the girls are like much older than her. Um, we come back a half hour later and they're all playing house and Aria is the mom and they're all sitting down as the children. Like that's just how Aria is. She just puts that. She And so we need to be concerned even for other people's kids, uh, how our daughter might lead them. Mm-hmm in that capacity. So I think that's a good, good point. Anything else? Nope. Okay. Veronica's stoked because she's done. Her talking portion is done. Hey, Dale Partridge here. We hope this podcast has been a blessing to your walk with God. For those that don't know, Real Christianity is an audio ministry under our nonprofit, relearnchurch.org. I'm telling you this because we're a listener-supported podcast. It takes a small team, a serious amount of equipment, and several hours per week to keep this show going. I share this because Veronica and I want to grow the reach of this show so that it might help even more Christians mature in their understanding of God's Word. So if you're a regular listener to this podcast, would you consider supporting us in this ministry effort? We're not asking for much, maybe $10, $20, or $25 per month. I promise you that your support will help us continue to get God's truth out, to strengthen the body of Christ, and to further the gospel. If you feel led to make a donation, simply go to relearnchurch.org forward slash donate. Again, that's relearnchurch.org forward slash donate. Thank you so much for your consideration. So we're going to talk about, uh, I'm going to talk about the second question 
is about the resurrection. Why is it so important? Uh, in lieu of you know Easter, um, for those of you that are offended that I called it Easter, I'll call it Resurrection Sunday. Um, I'm just kidding, but I know some people are really extensive, like don't use that word. Um, we don't need to get into the the details about Easter. That's another podcast. I've probably written an article or had an argument about it as well over the years. Um, but uh, I will tell you that the resurrection is critical. And I'm going to tell you why, and I'm going to give you a theological argument for it. And the church is heavily focused on a crucified Christ. I think we have this image of the cross. The Catholic church has kind of really uh, exploded that visual emblem throughout history. Um but theologically speaking, we're not actually saved from a crucified Christ. We're saved from a resurrected Christ. Now we need them. We need them both. We need it all. Um, but the reality is, is that the, like the crucifixion without the resurrection, uh, it isn't. It's just it's a dead person on a cross. Um, but the resurrection is critical. The resurrection is actually key, and I want to tell you why it's so important and why the church has really celebrated and understood and recognized this uh, as kind of the linchpin to the gospel. If the resurrection doesn't doesn't um, occur, then the whole gospel falls apart. And I'll explain that to you over this next couple minutes. Um, there's three reasons why the resurrection is so critical, and I just want to list them out just to be clear. First, the resurrection is God's validation of Jesus's atonement. I know I'm using big words here, but Jesus didn't raise himself. Uh, God raised him from the dead. And he did that as a validation uh, of his, ultimately his wrath was satisfied. Um, raising Jesus from the dead is, is his validation. The wrath of God has been satisfied with the atonement of the lamb, of the blood of Christ. It was sufficient for um, covering our sins. It was sufficient to offer forgiveness and restore humanity. So this is like the deeper theological background of it. Um, Romans 5, 9 through 10 says, uh, much more than having now been justified by his blood, we have been saved from the wrath through him. Verse 10, for if, we, uh, for if when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God through the death of his son, much more having been reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. Uh, his death and resurrection are so critical because it appeased the wrath of God. There, there's a word in the Bible, uh, it's propitiation, and it's an important Christian word. And the word is defined as, um, a, it, it's the appeasing of the wrath of God through blood sacrifice. And so Jesus is the propitiation of our sins. He's, he's literally appeased the wrath of God um, through his blood. He's made, he's paid the price that we couldn't pay on our own. And, um, Second uh, Corinthians, uh, I don't know exactly which chapter, I think it's maybe chapter 5 um, off the top of my head. Uh, Paul mentions that we have a ministry of reconciliation as Christians. This is what we're here to do. We're here to reconcile, not through us, but through Christ, uh, a rebellious humanity against a, uh, a loving God or to a loving God. And that's our ministry is to like, we've been reconciled. So therefore we want to go help other people become reconciled to Christ through the blood of Christ and through the resurrection of Christ. Um, the third thing uh, I want to talk about, or I should say the second thing, cause that was really just the breakdowns of the first. The second thing is the resurrection of Christ vindicates the events that happened on good Friday. And so just like what a tragedy because just in itself, it was um, 
it was wrongfully accused death. Like even outside of the whole theological stuff, just he, he, this innocent man died. And um, so the going into the theological stuff is that um, the resurrection vindicates that it brings, it restores back his life. Um, and so that's another cool point I want you to catch real quick. The third thing is that one cannot be saved without the uh, recognition and affirmation of the resurrection of Jesus. And we hear that in Romans 10, 9. It's a pretty famous verse. It says that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. And so you, you can't even become a Christian according to scripture uh, in, unless you not just uh, believe, in, believe in Jesus, not just even making him Lord, but also believe in your heart that God's, God raised him from the dead. So you can't really divorce the resurrection from Christianity right there. It's a critical part to even having faith in Christ. Um, <clears throat> so I want to quickly look at the centerpiece discussion of the resurrection that is found in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. And this is like the crown jewel of the defense of of the resurrection. It's written by Paul. It's the end of 1 Corinthians Um it's a great apologetic piece of text. I'm going to read it for you guys here. It's verses three through eight. It says, For I delivered to you first of all, which I also received, that Christ died for our sins, according to the scriptures, and that he was buried. So step one, step two, and that he rose again the third day, step three, according to the scriptures, and that he was seen by Cephas, who is Peter, then by the twelve. After that, he was seen by over 500 brethren, so it's talking about Christians, at once, of whom the greater part are still remaining to the present. Like, they're still alive. Go talk to them um, when he wrote this. Um, but some have fallen asleep. The difference between falling asleep and, and dying or perishing is these are Christians that have, have died, not Christians, not people who are lost and perished. Um, Last verse, it says, and after that, he was seen by James, then by all the apostles. Uh, Then last of all, he was seen by me also, meaning Paul, as as one born out of due time, meaning that Paul was not born at the same time as the other apostles were. Um, Again, that's 1 Corinthians 15, 3 through 8. Now, this is Paul's like logical defense for the death and resurrection of Christ. It's, he's defending this to the Corinthians and anybody that's challenging that. Um, there's a concern about resurrection. Um, this is actually a really important uh, topic to understand because it explains a really important gap in Christian history that you, you got to figure out what's going on here. Um, the gap between what should have been the movement-ending death of Jesus and the explosion of Christianity. So you have like the movement-ending death of Jesus. Like he's the leader of the movement and he dies. What other situation in real life do you ever see the leader of the movement? It's not that old. I'm talking, it's a couple years old, right? And there's no internet. And the leader of the movement dies, which should be like the movement ending death of this movement. Mm -hmm. But instead you don't see the death of a movement. You see an explosion of the movement. Mm -hmm. Um, How do you explain that? Like, how do you get there? And that's where you got to go in. um, And this is just good apologetic material. Uh, the only reason that you could go from death, to, uh, you know, of the leader to like a historical eruption of Christianity, um, it literally takes over the Roman Empire. Like, think about that. 
it becomes eventually the sanctioned religion of Rome. And Rome is actually the one that was taking part in killing in Jesus with the, with the Pharisees. So like, what an amazing thing to go from, we're going to kill you and now adopt Christianity as the entire uh, nation's sanctioned religion, right? A crazy thing. Um, the only way something like that, that could happen have to be something as incredible as like a resurrection, um, something, a miracle like that. And that's just one of the gaps. There's a couple other gaps I'll mention quickly. Um, how do you go from a leader dying and then 11 of his 12 followers that he actually knew uh, going and dying for his sake? So he, he dies and then we're going to go die for him. Well, unless he resurrected, I, I just find it hard to believe for someone to go like die. And they didn't just die um, in a group where like peer pressure or like causal loyalties could really kind of change that environment. These people go, historically speaking, and go die independently and alone without the peer pressure, um, like in the most terrible ways to die. And so there's just like, you got to look at that and go, why would anybody do that? And these are not stupid men. They're writing letters who sh that which show their, their incredible intellect. Um, and so it's not like they're just idiots that don't know what they're doing and are just taking their own lives or allowing people to, to kill them for, for no reason because they're just not intellectually wise enough to recognize the reality. That's not what's going on. Um, uh, the other thing is, how do you get a man like Paul, who again, you know, uh, he's evidently sane. He, he's written these incredible letters. He's a, he's a wise, uh, well-read, well-trained. He's a Pharisee uh, historically. Um, he, he, he hates Christians. He actually holds the coats of those people who are stoning Stephen. Like he hates Christians. How do you get this guy? to then go and endure all the intense persecution seen in 2 Corinthians. It's like stoning, lashes, shipwrecks, imprisonments, hatred, um, poverty, right? And, and then eventually going and giving his, like being murdered or martyred, I should say, same thing, for his his faith. How do, how do you get that to happen? So there's so many gaps you got to explain uh, if you're not going to believe that Christ resurrected. There's a lot of evidence there. Um, so that's one kind of part I want to talk about. The second part of that scripture in first Corinthians, I'm going to read to you guys right now, uh, just cause I think it's, I think it's valuable, uh, content to defend the resurrection, um, and, and understand how important Sunday, uh, the resurrection Sunday really is in terms of the narrative of Christian theology. So first Corinthians chapter 15, 12 through 19. So just a few verses later, there's a little gap of text that you can read in the, between these two verses, but Paul writes, now, if Christ is preached, that he has been raised from the dead, how do some among you say that there is no resurrection of the dead? But if there's no resurrection of the dead, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, then our preaching is empty and your faith is also empty. Yes, and we are also found false witnesses of God because we have testified of God that he, was, that he raised up Christ, whom he did not raise up if in fact the dead do not rise. For if the dead do not rise, then Christ is not risen. And if Christ is not risen, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins, exclamation point. Then also those who have all fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in this life only we have hope in Christ, we are of all men most pitiable. Okay, so this is Paul's, again, breaking down the chain reaction of like, man, if the resurrection's not true, like we got a huge problem. And he gives seven things and I'm gonna just list them off quickly. Um, one, he's like, 
number one, if there's no resurrection, one, there's no resurrection of the dead if Christ is not risen. Um, and there's no resurrection of Christ if there's no resurrection of the dead because Christ did rise. He's using this logical argument to explain this. Uh, point number two, he says, uh, all of Christian theology for the past 2,000 years is empty and useless. All of the preaching, all of the teaching, all of the writing is empty and useless if Christ did not rise. The third thing he says, our faith is useless and in vain, um, which is kind of the same thing. Like if Christ didn't rise, <laughs> your faith is totally a waste. There's nothing there. There's no faith in what is what Paul's saying here. If Christ did not rise, the apostles are liars. That's what Paul's saying. Like I'm a liar if the if Jesus didn't rise. Number five, if the resurrection didn't happen, we are still in our sins and under God's wrath, and we are not justified, and we are not being sanctified, and we are totally on our on our path to damnation. I mean, that's really what this is saying. Again, point number six: if the resurrection didn't happen. Those Christians who have died um, following Christ, they're not with the Lord. They're actually have perished and in hell, which is another like sad reality if the resurrection is not true. The seventh thing, Paul says, if the resurrection didn't happen, we Christians have terrible lives. <laughs> We're sitting here sacrificing all these things and and dedicating our lives to uh, uh, a theology that's ultimately not real if the resurrection's not true. And um, so I, what I want you guys to walk away with today in this short teaching of the resurrection is that it's the linchpin to the gospel. Like it's connected, man. You take the resurrection off and it's all fallen apart. These seven things, they all rise and fall together. You know, you, you take that, it's like a domino effect. Resurrection, boom, then all those things happen is what Paul was saying. Um, and if you're around Christian debate, or if you kind of look at like the, the tip of the iceberg, I should say the bottom of the iceberg, where people are really fighting and defending the faith, uh, you'll actually realize that the enemy knows this. He knows how critical the resurrection is. And the first place the attack is is often um, had um in an argument with like intellectual minds or people that are fighting for defending the faith is in the authenticity of the resurrection. Did that really happen? Because if they know if you could take that out, the whole domino thing falls over and Christianity falls apart. And so they, they know that they, you can't deny Jesus's historical existence. There's too much evidence for that. You know that you can't deny his crucifixion. There's actually too much ev evidence for that. But if you can just bring doubt to the resurrection. That's their aim, that everything starts to fall apart. And so it's a really important um, part of the Christian theology. And I, I even say like, it's it's the most important part. I think Paul would say that, man, yeah, it's like, without this, nothing else matters. Mm -hmm. um, and so we need it all. We need, we need the crucifixion. We need the resurrection. Um, but what I'm saying is that, man, just look at the emphasis that Paul gives here on this argument. So hopefully that helps you guys as you guys are trying to understand your theology for Easter and Resurrection Sunday, whatever you want to call it, and uh, that you can put some more meaning into that and be able to defend uh, the faith in that capacity. So what do you think about that?
Sounds great. Okay, Veronica's heard this stuff. We talk about this pretty often. I actually did a message on this at church a few uh, months ago, so it was really nice to reference back to these things. So I think that's it for today. A shorter show. Yeah, we just answered two questions. And um, until next week. Yeah, I wish we had more questions. We don't have more questions. Well, we had more questions, but they're like, again, they take us, you know, 10 minutes to answer them. Yeah, we put questions out we on the We could only po- answer like two. Every question that I got was like deep end of the pool yeah. question. And I was just like, oh my gosh, I could do a whole episode on these things. Or a series. Or series of episodes <laughs> on them. So yeah, guys, we're, we're working hard um, to do that. Again, thank you guys for your prayers uh, on me writing. I'm just finished the manuscript for Real Christianity and uh, I'm doing the editing process now. We're making lots of progress there. So we'll give you an update on that as the podcast move forward. On that note, if you guys, last thing, would you guys leave a review? Because I keep forgetting to um, say that. Actually, I don't. I say that all the time. <laughs> yeah, I was like, what? <laughs> I feel like I hear you say it all the time. But I don't want to forget. If you guys would leave a review, those are really important. At the end of the show is the best time to do it. Um, okay. Until next time. See ya. See you guys. Hey, Dale Partridge here. I think Christians underestimate the influence the culture can have on us. I think without even noticing, many of us have traded this incredible life that God wants for us for an empty counterfeit. If you haven't realized, the church has become comfortable with things we shouldn't be comfortable with. We've normalized things in our work, our marriages, our families, and our finances that are not normal. But the question I have for you is this. What does the Bible say about what's normal? What kind of life should Christians be chasing? What if I told you that what's popular isn't superior? What if I told you that what seems smart isn't actually right? What if I told you that the world's view of success is actually God's definition of failure? The Bible says that the wisdom of this world is foolishness to God. So what if we're doing it wrong? What if the lives of those who follow Jesus look more like the culture than like Christ? What if the life we're so desperate to have isn't something to seek after, but actually to be saved from? I answer these questions in my latest book, Saved from Success, how God can free you from culture's distortion of family, work, and the good life. It's a short, convicting, bold book. Get your copy in hardback or audiobook at relearnchurch.org forward slash success. Again, that's relearnchurch.org forward slash success. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Real Christianity. Real Christianity is an audio ministry of relearnchurch.org. If you'd like more information on how to live out a biblical life, relearnchurch.org hosts a variety of articles, podcasts, sermons, and videos to support your journey. Real Christianity is a 100% listener-supported ministry, and if you'd like to support our efforts, simply click the Donate tab at relearnchurch.org. You can also connect with both Veronica and I on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter for daily lessons and Bible teachings. Thank you for being with us today. We hope to see you next Wednesday for another episode of Real Christianity.